You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. All right, church. Well, please open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. And if you don't have your own copy of Scripture with you, it's page 615 in the Pew Bible. 615. I'll give you a second to turn there. Excuse me. You know, church, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) I think we're good. Okay. Here in good old northeastern Pennsylvania, we are no strangers to changing weather patterns, right? This is especially true in the wintertime and especially true even this week. We've seen how it can go from being 50 degrees and sunny one day to being almost zero degrees and cloudy the next day. I've heard it said that Pennsylvania weather throws out temperatures like Powerball numbers. 56, 32, 19, 44, 68, 27. Someone also joked, welcome to PA where winter is at 6 a.m., spring starts at 10 a.m., summer's at 2 p.m., falls around 4.30ish, dress accordingly. Church, it's true, Pennsylvania weather can be a bear, which is why having 24-7 access to weather forecasts is so important. Now, I'm fully aware that these forecasts are not always 100% accurate, unless, of course, you watch mine on Facebook. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, But we are still fortunate to have meteorologists and weather apps and even a groundhog that get it right every once in a while. They do a fairly good job at predicting the weather. Some even attempt to predict the weather like a month or two in advance, and and they get it right uh, every once in a while. Well, church, in the same way, the Bible is full of forecasts. Of course, we call them prophecies or predictions that pertain both to God's people and to the person and work of Jesus Christ. However, the key difference between the forecasts that are found within God's word and the forecasts of a weatherman is that God's word is always 100% accurate. He always gets it right. Isaiah 55:11 says, It is the same with my word. I send it out, and it always produces fruits, and it will always accomplish what I want it to do, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. Church, the amazing things about the predictions that are found within God's word is that many of them were written hundreds, even thousands of years before they came to pass. And the very fact that they came to pass is affirmation that God's word can be trusted. And today's passage, let me tell you, is no exception. In fact, it's probably the rule. Because this morning, as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah, we're going to study a passage of scripture that is considered to be the heart of the Hebrew prophetic writings. It's also the most quoted and alluded to passage in the New Testament uh, from the Old Testament. In fact, there are over 80 references to the book of Isaiah in the New Testament, and most come from Isaiah 53. It is a passage that predicted with perfect accuracy the life, death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ seven centuries before he came to earth. And it's through our study of this beloved passage that we're going to be reminded of a life-changing truth to remember, and it's this. Jesus endured suffering so we could enjoy salvation. Let's never forget this truth today. And so with that, let me just pray one last time before we hop into our study on Isaiah 53. Lord God, you are such an amazing God. 
an intriguing God, just an interesting God, Lord. You saw it fit to allow your prophet, Isaiah, to, to, to foresee, to forecast, to predict what your son Jesus Christ was going to do seven centuries before he did it. And I just find that remarkable, God. You are so remarkable. And we praise you, Lord, for this passage today. And I pray that you would use this passage, however you see fit, to speak to our people today, to draw them close to Jesus, to remind them of, of what they were saved from, or perhaps even save some, uh, some souls this morning. But Lord, thank you for this, this blessed reminder. And just pray, God, your blessing over our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So before, before we, we hop into today's text, I always like to provide a little bit of context as, as to where we're kind of at. Um, the book of Isaiah has four special sections. I talked about them last week. They're called servant songs. And, 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 which, and these servant songs, in one way or another, describe the service, the suffering, or the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And so you could find these songs in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. And while each one of these servant songs is uniquely remarkable in the detail concerning the person and work of Jesus, this last servant song in Isaiah 53 takes the cake. In fact, some early church fathers, this was interesting, some early church fathers used to refer to the book of Isaiah as the fifth gospel, largely because of the contents found in Isaiah 53. As you might recall, okay, so just go on this journey with me. It'll all make sense in just 30 seconds, hopefully. As you might recall, in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, and he was explaining the central theme of the gospel. Listen to his words. They'll be on the screen. He said this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See, that phrase, in accordance with the scriptures, is a direct reference to Old Testament prophecies, in particular, Isaiah 53. And again, the fact that they were written 700 years before Christ's coming with breathtaking detail, it's just remarkable. It's remarkable. And so I've decided to split today's servant song into four sections pertaining to the person and work of Jesus. And let's begin, of course, by looking at the first, which is this, the servant rejected. The servant rejected. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Follow along with me. You're going to need a Bible because I don't have most of the verses on the screen, so you're going to have to look in your, in your copy of Scripture today. Verses 1 through 3. It says, Who has believed what, is heard from, what has been heard from us? And to whom has the term of the Lord, arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In 1929, a football player named Roy Regals desperately wanted his team to win the Rose Bowl. The scores were tied and the game entered into a crucial moment. And at one point, the ball was fumbled and Roy scooped up the loose ball, and he cut in and out of traffic, and he eluded tacklers, and he displayed breathtaking athleticism. He sprinted 70 yards, almost the entire distance of the field, before being tackled one yard short of the goal line by his own teammates. You see, Roy lost his bearings, and he ran the wrong way. <laughs> and for the rest of his life, very few people regarded him for being a great athlete that he was, Instead, he was known as Roy Wrongway Regals. 
Church, when Jesus came to earth, very few people, relatively speaking, regarded him as the great Messiah. In fact, Isaiah tells us that most people disregarded him and rejected him and viewed him as a man of little to no importance. Most people believe that his way was the wrong way. In fact, John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In other words, the creator of the world was rejected by the people he created. Even his own chosen people, the Jews, rejected him. And the irony of it all is that the Jews, of all people, were the ones who anticipated a Messiah. They, of all people, anxiously awaited his arrival. However, when Jesus arrived, he didn't meet their expectations of what a Messiah should be. Isaiah's phrase, if you go back to, uh, to the scripture here, Isaiah's phrase, a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, was a reference to the humble nature of the Messiah. You see, Jesus entered the world as a baby, not a king. He was born in a stable, not a palace. Likewise, Isaiah said that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You see, contrary to what we see portrayed in, in movies and pictures and films, Jesus did not have this special glow about him. He wasn't physically attractive. Humanly speaking, he was just an average Joe. Needless to say, Jesus wasn't the Messiah that the Jews were looking for. He didn't represent things that they valued like wealth and prestige and reputation and power and position. And likewise, the messages that he preached and the fact that he claimed to be God, that was offensive to the Jews. So much so that they despised him. They despised him. Church, 2,000 years later, not much has changed. People still despise and reject Jesus for the very same reasons. He's just not the Messiah that most people want. You see, to accept Jesus as Messiah means that we have to come to grips with our own depravity and admit that our way is the wrong way. And that's just something that many people don't want to do. In fact, Jesus said this in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work be exposed. You see, according to God's word, people reject Christ because they fear of what his light might expose in their lives. They fear how their lives might change if they accepted him. And quite frankly, people just want to do what they want to do, and they don't want to be told that what they're doing is they shouldn't be doing. But here's the sad part. What, what many people fail to consider when they reject Jesus is that rejecting Jesus on earth will have a devastating impact on their eternity. Most of us understand this, but maybe a few of you here don't. You see, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is... What? It's death. And, and, and friends, the loudest voices in our society today tell us that we can be who we want to be and do what we want to do without consequence. More and more we're being told that morality and good and evil are relative to the subject being considered. More and more we're being told that there's no such thing as right and wrong, but that's not what God says. And God's the one who makes the rules. We don't. God does. 
The Lord established unchanging standards of right and wrong. He established moral absolutes, even if they're unpopular. And when we fail to live according to these moral absolutes, the Bible calls this sin. Sin is anything we say, think, or do that's contrary to God and his word. And according to God's word, all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin, all of us, our sin must be punished. Look on the screen, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. It says, he will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. You see, friends, the most frightening doctrine in all of Scripture is the doctrine of hell. Hell is a place of eternal torment and separation from God. It's also the default, listen, it's also the default destination for everyone who's ever lived. It's our default destination because we are all by default sinners. And so the only way to receive forgiveness for our sins and avoid an eternity spent in hell is by accepting Jesus as the Messiah, not rejecting him. Because he and he alone provided a way for you and I to be made right with God. And this next section in Isaiah 53 explains how. So this gives, leads to the second section, the servant wounded. The servant wounded. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, how did he respond? He responded by laying on him the iniquity of us all. Church, a few weeks ago, I was putting gas into my truck at Sam's Club. And once I finished, I got back into my truck and I turned over the key and nothing happened. And I tried this multiple times to no avail. For some reason, my truck was completely dead. And so I called a friend and I asked if he could meet me uh, with my jumper cables. They were in my van at my house and he was local, so he went and picked them up and brought them up. But even then, the jumper cables proved unsuccessful. And so next, I deduced that my battery must be so weak that I just need a new battery and the truck will turn over fine. So my friend took me to go get a new battery. We installed the new battery, turned over the truck, nothing happened. Still dead. Not even a click. So eventually, I made the call of shame to AAA, and I got towed to a mechanic. Well, as it turned out, it was my starter. My starter had died. Well, when I called the mechanic to pick up my truck, and I asked him how much I owed him, to my surprise, he said, nothing. And in complete shock, I said, wait, 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 time out. You're breaking up here, buddy. I thought you said nothing. So I said, wait, what do you mean nothing? And he went on to explain that the cost was covered by someone else. In other words, someone else took care of the payment for my problem. They paid for it in full. And, and it's always kind of awkward because you don't know what to do with that, especially when you don't have the name of the person that helped you out. I mean, there was literally nothing I could do but accept the fact that my problem was completely paid for. New life was given to my truck at no cost to me. And I'm, I'm still blown away that someone would do something like that for a fool like me. But church, just like my truck, the Bible teaches that spiritually speaking, we are completely 
dead in our sins. And there is nothing in our own power that we could do to jumpstart our souls and give us new life. In other words, we cannot earn our way out of hell and into heaven. That is the biggest lie of Satan this side of heaven. That if you just heap up your good deeds, you're going to go to heaven someday. Don't believe that for a second because it's not true. There's nothing we can do. Only an outside source can fix our sin problem and pay for our sin problem. And that's precisely what Jesus did. He paid for our problem in full. I've heard it put this way. Jesus came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. Look what Isaiah writes. He says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, this, these words, they detail the agony of the cross. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life and willingly endured a Roman crucifixion. And while hanging on that cross, Jesus literally took the sins of the entire world, your sins, my sins, upon himself. Every evil thought and word and deed was laid on the perfect, innocent Son of God. This was the only way the wrath of God could be satisfied against a sinful man. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in Jesus, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians call this doc the doctrine of substitutionary atonement or imputation. It comes from the Latin verb imputare, which means to charge to someone's account. Listen, when Jesus died on the cross, it enabled this glorious transaction to take place. At the cross, our sin was charged to Christ. And at the moment of our conversion, his spot, perfect, spotless righteousness is credited to us. Just like that. Friends, that's how we're able to be given new life on earth and be given the gift of heaven for eternity. When a person places their faith in Jesus, when they believe that his substitutionary atonement is enough, God the Father in heaven no longer sees their sin. He only sees Christ's righteousness. Isn't that incredible? Think of the sin in your own life. Forget the sins of the world. That's too big to think about, but you know your own sins. Those same sins that keep creeping up in your life that cause guilt and shame and all this kind of stuff to you. And, and, and you just can't get over that sin or, or you're just disgusted with yourself or whatever, you know, those, those reactions, those thoughts, those actions, whatever it is. Just think about your own. When God the Father looks at you, if you're a believer in him, when he looks at you, he doesn't see any of that. He only sees Jesus, his righteousness. Wow. Wow. Second, excuse me, Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, you were dead because of your sins. And because of your sinful nature, because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, but then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us, and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. Of course, you might be asking the same question about Jesus that I asked about my truck. Why 
in the world would God do something like that for someone like me? I don't deserve it. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own ways. Why would God choose to willingly die for someone who rejects him? Well, the answer is simple. He did it because he loves you. And he loves us so much. Look at Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, while we still rejected him, spit on him, mocked him, accused him, nailed him to a cross, put a spear in his side. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Not until we cleaned up our lives and said, I'm only going to die for the good people. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, church, it was the relentless, unconditional love of God that caused Jesus to pay for our problem. It was the relentless, unconditional love of God that caused Jesus to endure mockery and insults and accusations from his enemies. It was relentless, unconditional love of God that caused Jesus to endure the agony of the cross and cry out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It was the relentless, unconditional love of God that caused Jesus to endure unjust punishment so that he can buy us back. He could buy us back. Billy Graham said, God proved his love on the cross. When Christ hung and bled and died, it was God saying to the world, I love you. And do you know what? He did it all without saying a word. Without saying a word. Look at verses 7 and 8 in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? You see, at any time Jesus could have said the word, and his mockers and his accusers and his scoffers would have been wiped out, just like that. Can you imagine having that kind of power and restraining it? At any time, Jesus could have called down thousands of angels to wipe the floor with those who arrested him, beat him, and put him on the cross. But instead of speaking up or pleading his case, he remained silent. And if you read through the, those last days of Jesus, you see he, he pretty much remained. He was, he was silent. He didn't fight back. In fact, 1 Peter 2.23 says, For when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What a great example to follow. When we're, when we've, when we're facing injustice, this is kind of a sidebar. When we're getting beat up or facing injustice or persecuted or whatever. You know, we're always taught, you've got to stand up for yourself and stand up for your rights. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but sometimes we just got to know when to shut up and trust God to show up. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we're just going to be like, all right, God, like, I just want to follow Christ's example with this situation. I'm just going to trust you. Church, I find it fascinating. I don't know if you're as fascinated with this stuff as I am, but I find it fascinating that even this modest detail that was, was predicted 700 years before Christ came to earth, he's going to be silent. Modest detail came to pass. Another noteworthy detail is that Isaiah compared God's servant to a lamb being led to the slaughter. If you know anything about the Old Testament, 
God required animal sacrifices to provide a temporary covering for sins. And the animals used for these types of sacrifices were what? Lambs. Seven centuries later, John the Baptist looked at Jesus, saw Jesus coming. What did he say? He said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Once again, the prophet forecasted with, in breathtaking detail how Jesus would be the once and for all perfect sacrifice for the sins of man. And We're not quite done with the details yet. Look at verse 9. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I want to tell you guys a true story about Buddy the Cat. I may have told you this story before. I asked Carrie if I've ever told the story. She said, maybe you did. But again, you forgot. So I'm going to tell you again. So here it is. You see, Buddy was the beloved family cat in the home where my wife grew up. In fact, she and her mom had a very special connection with Buddy. Well, as the story goes, one day Carrie, Carrie's brother, saw Buddy lying in the middle of the highway after being struck by a car. And in a panic, he ran and told his father, Bill. Of course, Bill, not wanting his wife or his daughter uh, to see Buddy splattered on the highway, decided to scoop him up and bury him in the backyard. He figured that he would bury Buddy first, and then he would find a way to break the news to the family. Well, after Buddy was buried, Bill went into the house walked into the bedroom and said to his wife, Linda, I've got some bad news. Buddy got hit by a car, and I just buried him in the backyard. To which Linda responded, what are you talking about? Buddy's not dead. He's right here on the bed. And there sat, sat Buddy purring peacefully on the mattress. And so startled and a bit shocked, my father-in-law exclaimed, well, then whose cat did I bury? <laughs> I love that. I love that story. I can, I can just picture him trying to bury this cat, trying to figure out what he's going to say. Bury somebody else's cat. There is somebody living on planet Earth right now who still doesn't know what happened to their cat. Buried in the backyard at my in-law's house. But church, there are many people who try to discredit Jesus and undermine the gospel message by claiming he never actually died. And this is why his burial is such an essential part of the gospel message. His burial is proof of the finality of his death. And unlike Buddy, his burial was not bogus. Again, I find it jaw-dropping that the prophet Isaiah predicted with painstaking accuracy even the type of burial Christ would receive. If you recall, after Jesus died on the cross, he was placed in a tomb. But it wasn't just any tomb. It was the tomb of a rich man, as predicted by Isaiah, 700 years beforehand. Look at Matthew 27. It's on the screen. When it was evening, there came a what? A rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body, and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and he laid it in his own tomb, the tomb of a rich man. Church, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make it up. This remarkable fulfillment of prophecy is just yet another reminder that if God said it will be done, then it's as good as done. Right down to the last detail. This leads us to the third section. The servant resurrected. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see See his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, there's a, actually a lot in this verse. I just want to focus on what I highlighted on the screen. He shall prolong his days. 
Dr. William Barnick, Barrick tells a story of a church service that happened in Bangladesh uh, that was packed. It was so packed that little children sat on the floor, in the aisles, and across the front of the church. Rows of people stood in the back, straining their necks to see the crucifixion scene as depicted in the Jesus film. Weeping and gasps of unbelief could be heard through the shocked hush as Jesus was crucified. And as the Bengalis watched, they felt the agony of Jesus' pain and the disappointment of the disciples. And in that emotional moment, one young boy in that crowded church suddenly cried out, Don't be afraid! He gets up again! I saw it before! Church, that young boy's encouraging cry gave new hope to everyone in the room. And the same is true with us today. Those words, treasured words, he is risen, give us a hope. When Isaiah said he shall prolong his days, the meaning here is that even though the Messiah would die, he would not remain dead. Your days can't be prolonged if you're dead. This is a reference to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Longtime pastor and author Ray Stedman said the resurrection of Jesus isn't only good news, it is the best news imaginable. Why? Because our entire faith hinges on it. Our entire faith, everything we do on a Sunday and throughout the course of our week, our times of worship, everything rises and falls on the resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. It's on the screen. just want to show it to you. It says that Paul wrote this, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. And in that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Friends, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that everything he said was true. Which means... We really can receive forgiveness for our sins and have the assurance of eternal life. Look at Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteousness, righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Make many to be accounted righteousness. Who do you think they're talking about there? Who's Isaiah talking about there? Us! Make many to be accounted right. Because of what he did, he'll be able to make many to be accounted righteousness in the, in the eyes of God. Here Isaiah reveals another doctrine of the faith that theologians call justification. It means just as if I never sinned or to declare righteous. When someone places their faith in Jesus, God declares them righteous and completely wipes away the record of sins. He remembers their sins no more. Church, the resurrection of Jesus is what makes justification possible. So listen, because I actually deal with this on a fairly regular basis as a pastor, just in speaking with some of you. The enemy will do everything in his power to discourage you and make you doubt your salvation. The enemy will do everything in his power to accuse you and deceive you and make you feel unworthy of God's love. The enemy will do everything he can to debilitate your spirits and steal your joy and impair your effectiveness for the Christian life. So listen closely. If you believe in Jesus, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then don't give the enemy another minute of your time. Don't believe his lies. Don't give him rent-free space up in your head to accuse you. 
You are justified. You are forgiven. You are a set free child of God. And as we just sang, no power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation. How about it? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? And this leads us to the fourth and final section, the servant rewarded. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Again, so much in this. For, this was a hard, hard passage or, or message to put together because there's so much meat and potatoes in every single verse. I had to be a little picky and choosy. So I wanted to focus in on the reward here. Isaiah closes by predicting the triumph of the Messiah. The phrase, I will divide him a portion with the many, is this language that describes the distribution of spoils. The spoils of victory after a battle. The idea is that God has given Jesus the ultimate reward for his obedience. And some of these spoils of victory include winning countless souls to himself and forever being known and exalted as the name above all names. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. It says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so what did God do for him? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, all this to say, Isaiah 53. Isn't it an amazing passage? Isaiah 53 is one of the many passages in Scripture that proves that the forecasts of God's word are always 100% accurate. Which means everything that his word says is true. Which means everything that his word says about you and I being sinners in need of a Savior is true. Which means... That everything that his, his word says about accepting Jesus as our Savior is true. Now, I understand I'm probably speaking to a, a crowd. I know I'm speaking to a crowd who's mostly done that. But if you haven't, just listen. Give me, give me another minute. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. If you want to have your sins paid for in full, if you want to receive forgiveness, if you want to have the assurance of everlasting life, then you must personally place your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you've never done that before, but you like to, you're convinced that what God's word it says is true and you want, to, you want to place your faith in Jesus, you can do so right now. Even in the, in the quietness of your seat, just by silently praying to God. Say, so just admit to him that you're a sinner and repent of your sin and ask God to forgive you and believe in Jesus. Just, you got to just trust in what he did on the cross. It's, it's, it's an act of faith. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't fix the problem on yourself. You have to trust that Jesus fixed it for you. And at the moment of belief, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and seal you for eternity. And you will become a child of God forever.
John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him. Remember, I just read, I read those verses earlier that talked about how even his own people rejected him. Then John continues, he says, but to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's a right that we got to stand on and claim. Children of God. Friend, don't wait to make a decision for Jesus. Don't let another minute go by. Far too many people who have chosen to put off a decision for Christ and have never come back around again to make it. The Apostle Paul said, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ right now. You'll walk out of here as a born-again child of God. Just like that. And this leads us back to today's truth to remember. Jesus endured suffering so we could enjoy salvation. This morning, we're going to close our time as a church by responding to Christ's suffering by celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so if you guys have, have your elements, you can grab these. If you don't have, just, just put your hand up in the air, and the ushers will get one to you, okay? If you don't have one of these. And, and just keep your hand up in the air, otherwise, because they're not going to be able to, to see that. So keep your hand up in the air. We'll, we'll make sure they get around. See, a lot of times we like to celebrate the Lord's Supper while everyone's still in here with the kiddos as well. And that's our typical practice. But today I couldn't help but, man, this is Isaiah 53. If there's any passage in Scripture that's going to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, it's Isaiah 53. And so we decided to, to close our service by doing so. And so while we're waiting for everybody else to get their elements, if you guys want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's page 958 in your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, we spent the better part of this morning's message remembering what Jesus did. His life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. So we've done that part. But there's a part two to communion that Paul explains. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have even died. You see, the Corinthian church was making a mockery out of the Lord's Supper. And so Paul was calling them out on that. And he In doing so, he was calling them to, to do inward focus and think about their own lives. Examine your own lives. And he was talking to believers. He wasn't talking to unbelievers. He was talking to the Corinthian church. They were believers and they were, they were causing problems. And so... We're believers. 
And we're known to cause problems too. And have our own set of problems. And so I'm going to just take the next 30 seconds, minutes, or minute or so, and just do some inward introspection. Ask the Lord to examine your heart. Reveal any areas of sin that need to be repented of before we take communion together. And then I'll lead us in receiving. Lord God, I'm reminded of the words of David in Psalm 51, where he was repenting for his sin. And he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Lord, I pray that over myself and over our church family today. That whatever sin issues you may have brought to their attention, that not only that they and I would repent of those shortcomings, but then ask you, Lord, oh, Lord, create a clean heart within us. Renew a right spirit within us. Restore to us, Lord, the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let us follow what the Lord asks us to do. and So this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's respond by singing first verse of Amazing Grace. You guys know it. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved us wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Amen. At this time, I'd like to invite the, the praise team and the prayer team forward. We are going to respond with one more a song that, that really focuses in on the power of the cross this morning. And as they're coming forward, let me just pray over you one more time. Lord Jesus, again, we praise you. We thank you for enduring suffering so that we could enjoy salvation. Lord, that is a sacrifice that we can never fully know or even understand, but we believe it to be true. And God, we are eternally grateful for the gift of eternal life through your son, Jesus. Help us to never lose sight of that, never allow that good news to grow old in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.